Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on two topics, North Korea and the 1960 presidential campaign between Nixon and JFK. Our first speaker will be Nicholas Eberstadt, who is the Henry Wendt Chair of Political Economy at AEI. Nick is an expert on North Korea, and he's very concerned that North Korea will attack South Korea. Kim and his cronies have articulated their vision for a united Korea, and Nick thinks they mean what they say. The plan is as ludicrous as it may sound, but it's probably as ludicrous as Putin invading Ukraine. And the reason is that South Korea is an illegitimate, American-supported puppet regime that must be toppled and by force if necessary. Our second speaker will be Irv Gelman, who is a popular historian who has a new book entitled Campaign of the Century, Kennedy and Nixon and the Election of 1960. Irv disagrees with the historical narrative about this incredibly close presidential race. There is much to discuss, including election fraud, JFK's mistresses, and the first television debates. All right, buckle up. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. And you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Let's begin with our first speaker, Nick Eberstadt. Point one North Korean leadership is not crazy. We condescend and misunderstand when we say that it is. The DPRK couldn't have outlasted the Soviet Empire by all these decades if it were irrational. Call North Korea a rogue state if you want. Ouch. But that epithet doesn't help us understand its ideology, internal logic, or objectives. North Korea is a classic revisionist state. It is fundamentally dissatisfied with the geopolitical realities it faces and wholly committed to changing the offending facts on the ground. The Kim regime regards the South Korean state as an illegitimate monstrosity that must be destroyed and swept off the peninsula. Full stop. Since Washington guarantees Seoul's security, the USROK military alliance must also be destroyed, and American troops must be forced out of Korea so that Pyongyang can proceed with unconditional reunification on its own terms. Pyongyang spells this all out again and again for anyone willing to take their words seriously. Pyongyang doesn't just come up with these ideas. They have informed and animated the North Korean state throughout three generations of Kim family rule. The rationale is integral to the state's basic doctrine, as laid out in Juche thought and the so-called Ten Principles of Monolithic Ideology. Racial reunification is, in effect, the sacred historical mission of the Kim regime. Forswearing that mission would undermine its very claim to authority. Second, the North Korean state is methodically preparing to fight and win a limited nuclear war against the United States on the Korean peninsula. Those preparations have been underway for decades. This is what the never-ending North Korean nuclear crisis is all about. North Korea almost unified the peninsula unconditionally back in June 1950, remember, but that attempt failed, and the Kim regime has never given up the quest. For a while, in the late 1950s and 1960s, it actually seemed like the North might be able to overpower the South through economic competition, as amazing as that may sound today. 
But Pyongyang lost the economic race badly, as central planning systems typically do against free markets, even before the end of the Cold War, meaning that success in a conventional military contest, a reprise of 1950, was no longer viable. So nukes and WMD are the regime's plan B. There is an entirely logical design to the North's race to become a nuclear weapons state and a manufacturer of ICBMs. These are its key to consummating a Korean unification on its own terms. By amassing a credible nuclear arsenal and the long-range missiles to train them on the U.S., the North hopes, I believe, to get Uncle Sam to blink in a future showdown at a time and place of the Kim's own choosing. If Washington blinks in a nuclear face-off against the DPRK, the U.S.-South Korean alliance loses its credibility and collapses. Then the North gets to go mano a mano with the South. Yes, if push really does come to shove, thinking the unthinkable, the Kim regime would be annihilated. But the Kim regime seems confident it can outplay the Americans in this high-stakes game. They believe they're better at brinksmanship than the Americans. One might even be tempted to say they have the nukes to prove it, this despite three decades of seemingly forceful U.S. opposition to their nuclear quest. Finally, notwithstanding the perennial calls for diplomatic engagement with the North, there can be no negotiated settlement, no splitting the difference, no win-win solution with the North on the nuclear issue. The reason is as simple as it is unpleasant. Like all Ur revisionists, the North will not be satisfied with some meet-in-the-middle compromise over an intolerable grievance. The intolerable grievance in this case being the continuing existence of a separate state on the southern half of the Korean peninsula, a prosperous, flourishing democracy, no less. To most of us, the notion that tiny, impoverished North Korea could beat and eat the South after driving out Uncle Sam, assuming they could, sounds utterly laughable but not to the North's leadership. They regard South Koreans as defiled, corrupted, pampered, and gutless. They think the South has no will to fight on its own. And as long as the Kim regime is in power, they're going to try to prove that they are right. In sum, expect the North Korean nuclear crisis to continue until Pyongyang gets a better class of dictator. Nick, why did North Korea invade South Korea in 1950? And what does that have to do with your thesis? That's the start of the whole drama. The North Korean leadership under the Kim family has held from the beginning that they are the repositor of the destiny of the Korean minjok, which I'd translate as race, sometimes nationality. And the opportunity seemed to arise in 1950 after Dean Acheson's famous speech that omitted the Republic of Korea from our security perimeter. At the time of the 1950 invasion, North Korea was much wealthier, more technically advanced, and had substantial commodity reserves. Despite a very good opening gambit, it ended in a stalemate. Today, South Korea is 100 times wealthier per capita than North Korea. It's mind-boggling. Now, the North couldn't win when it was bigger, stronger, and wealthier. Why do you think it can win when it's substantially weaker and poor? Does this explain the nuclear option? 
All of the other options have fallen along the wayside in this three-generation quest. North Korea's GDP is approximately zero as a first approximation. They're not going to be able to overpower the South on the basis of their economic might. Before South Korea was a democracy, it was a military dictatorship, the North made the argument that they were a more appealing state than the South in the late 50s and early 60s. 100,000 Koreans in Japan voted with their feet and went to the North. But Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un aren't attractive poster children in our modern era. Seoul is close to the North Korean border. In the North Korean mountains, artillery is pointed directly at Seoul. It would be impossible for the South Koreans to take out the artillery prior to the destruction of the city. And that's with conventional, let alone nuclear weapons. Americans have soldiers on the ground there which indicates that they're willing to sacrifice troops and will defend South Korea. What do you make of American ground troops in a future Korean conflict? The U.S. troops are a tripwire. An attack on U.S. forces would precipitate our full response to defend the ROK. And this is one of the main reasons that the North Korean strategy seems to be focused upon ending the U.S.-ROK alliance and the exit of American troops from the South and the removal of the American nuclear umbrella from over South Korea's state and people. What do North Koreans think of the Ukrainian experience now? The North Korean government has been making the point for years that nuclear weapons are absolutely essential to their security. They point to the Libyan example as what happens when a state does not have nuclear weapons. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons back in the 1994 agreement. The North Koreans would never relinquish nuclear weapons. If you were advising the South Korean government Would you suggest going nuclear to achieve deterrence and remove the uncertainty of the American nuclear umbrella? The South Korean population is strongly in favor of going nuclear, according to current public opinion polls. The vagaries of public opinion will depend upon how credible the South Korean population believes the U.S. commitment to be. The less credible America's commitment the more likely they're going to go nuke. It's very easy to imagine a chain reaction where a lot of countries, including the ROK, Japan, Australia, Taiwan, might be tempted to go nuclear if one more country in the region does so. United States policy has attempted to preclude that by assuring its allies that it is absolutely reliable. But these are democracies, and their populations have a say in this too. Core to your argument is to listen to what your enemies are saying. Putin laid out his arguments for the invasion of Ukraine in a public speech, a rational argument to justify Russia's attack. Here, North Korea has a reasoned argument to invade South Korea. Your position seems to be, listen to what your enemies say. We have this condescending Olympian view that we know best 
And they can't possibly mean what they're saying because it doesn't make any sense to us. There was this ridiculous little man from Austria with the mustache saying all of these filthy things about Jews. And Mein Kampf is just ridiculous. We look at people whose point of view are radically different from our own and say it's impossible, it isn't sensible. It's only not sensible in the world as we'd like it to be. The elephant in the region is China. Xi says he loves North Korea and that their friendship is forever. What do the Chinese want? Well, I don't think in truth there's a lot of love lost between the North Korean and the PRC leadership. From what evidence I see, they kind of detest each other. But they understand power politics as well as ideology. As long as the North Korean state causes more difficulty for the U.S. alliance in Asia than it does for the PRC, they're prepared to live with that. You've got a divided peninsula. Beijing gets to play them off against each other. I'm not sure that China has had such a favorable position in Northeast Asia since the Qing dynasty, the time of the Taiping Rebellion. It may indeed serve China to manage this relationship until it stops working. Why didn't China discourage North Korea from going nuclear? It's not clear that the Chinese government ever thought it was in its overriding interest to prevent the emergence of a nuclear North Korea, as long as it could be relatively confident that the missiles would be trained in one direction and not in the other direction. During one of my previous book clubs, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz told us that in his negotiations with the Chinese, the United States offered to remove all U.S. troops from the peninsula after a Korean unification. But that did not satisfy the Chinese. The alternative to having a North Korean state would be having a unified, market-oriented state run out of Seoul in alliance with the United States. The last time that China had a foreign power on its border was when Korea was occupied by Japan, and that was the staging ground for the invasion in the 1930s. Much better to have strategic depth, even if you've got a troublesome frenemy there. South Korea's economy has grown by a factor of 100 since 1950, and China has grown enormously as well. Why can't China's strategic interests change instead of looking through the lens of the Qing dynasty? Why can't economic opportunity justify a new strategy? In theory, there's no reason they couldn't. Over the past couple of decades, I've tried to probe that very question, Larry. I've tried to talk with Chinese interlocutors about how much money they'd save if they had a better dictator in North Korea. It'd be a lot easier to develop the Manchuria area in northeast China. The North Korean government sometimes acts in bizarre ways that is inconsistent with international norms. In the early 1950s, the North Koreans sent a military submarine to kidnap Japanese lovers on the beach and then took them to North Korea to train North Korean troops about Japanese culture and language for a future contemplated invasion of Japan. In the late 1990s, the Japanese found out about the kidnappings and were outraged and demanded a North Korean apology and return of the Japanese kidnapped victims. 
But the North Koreans refused to let them return with their wives and families. The Chinese observed the situation, how it angered and frustrated the Japanese, but did not intervene. What do the Chinese think of North Koreans' violations of international norms? All's fear in love and war, and this is war. No love lost with Japan. And any means that were necessary for purposes of state to advance reunification on their own terms were fine. And so if people in the outside world saw these as heinous violations of norms, the response would be, it's a heinous violation of norms to have this abhorrent state in the south of our peninsula propped up by imperialists across the ocean. From the standpoint of Beijing, to see why the government that still does the reprises of the rape of Nanjing at the drop of a hat would all of a sudden say, I'm shocked, shocked by what these naughty North Koreans are doing to your poor beachgoers. It's absolutely intolerable, isn't it? It's a sort of a business and pleasure situation from the Chinese standpoint. A few years ago, a miniature North Korean submarine attacked a South Korean boat for no apparent reason. People died. What do you make of these isolated raids? The North Korean approach is to embrace radical goals, change the map, and to approach them in a way that's cautious and incremental. You keep on moving forward to normalize new behavior and realities. And if you get some serious pushback, you step back and consolidate a little bit. So having miniature subs sink the Chonan, the South Korean vessel, it's a probe. And if nothing happens, then you probe a little further. And if there's a big blowback, you deal with that, but you establish a new norm. All along the history of the North's confrontation with the U.S. and South Korea, we see episodes that to us would seem bizarre and outrageous, but are logical outcomes from the approach and doctrine which the North Korean state has. Let's go back to 1950, before the North's invasion of South Korea. The current dictator Kim's grandfather visited Stalin to discuss the invasion of the South, and Stalin gave his blessing. You mentioned in your six-minute opening remarks that Dean Acheson, America's Secretary of State at the time, had not included South Korea as part of the U.S. security guarantee, suggesting that if he had, there would have been no attack. If we go back to 1950, the fateful speech omitting South Korea from the security perimeter, but there was plenty of other evidence. Congress had voted down aid for it. If you were a betting man or woman, you probably would have bet that the United States was not terribly interested in this place. And even the Americans didn't learn how interested they were in the place until it was attacked. And all of a sudden, those unpredictable Americans are at it once again. If there were a successful reunification effort led by North Korea, it would look like a moon launch. They'd have to get lucky and have no margin for error. One hypothetical would be after the 
exit of U.S. troops and the U.S. nuclear umbrella, some sort of domestic turmoil in the South would somehow paralyze the society to allow opportunistically North Korean elements to walk in and claim a dominion. I'm not making this entirely up. Back in 1983, the Rangoon bombing, when the then dictator of South Korea was visiting a shrine outside of Rangoon in Myanmar, Burma, North Korean agents missed him but blew up a lot of his cabinet. North Korea is a sideshow in the region, away from their nukes. I don't think many people in the region even think of them. The elephant in the room is Chinese power. And after Obama pivoted, Americans created a coalition to contain Chinese aggression. The Quad. India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S. will likely take the lead. But I suspect that South Korea and Taiwan would join the group. And if that coalition solidifies, this will unite South Korea with its democratic neighbors that will likely help them defend against North Korea, especially Japan. What do you make of the growing coalition against China also undermining North Korea's invasion plans? That's a really interesting question, Larry. The North Korean approach has been to focus upon the United States and the ROK, to a much lesser degree, Japan, trying to break the U.S. alliance and move forward on this quixotic quest of unconditional unification. The approach has been conditioned by the security architecture of the Pacific. We've got a hub and spoke set of bilateral relationships with the United States because the Japanese question has not been answered to the satisfaction of Japan's Indo-Pacific neighborhood. If the Japan question is answered to the satisfaction of the neighbors, then, as you intimate, a much deeper and perhaps more resilient security network will be possible and would multiply the complexity of unconditional reunification for the North Koreans. American and Western diplomats find North Korean behavior nonsensical. Don't they understand that communism has failed and that their country is an unmitigated disaster? Please come and join the American international order like everybody else. We'll offer you help from the IMF and some tactical assistance. And one day you can be as rich as the South Koreans. The Chinese reformed and look at them. No big deal. All is forgiven. And the Americans were shocked when they were not met with open arms, but instead insults and rejection. We were confused and puzzled by the response because we've got such a self-referential, a historical perspective on human affairs. If you'd gone to the Spartans and say, we're going to dangle this gold in front of you, can you please just throw away those stupid swords and shields and make nice with the Athenians? They'd have cut your head off. 
because it's not just preposterous, but it's a grave insult to their honor. There are a lot of things that motivate human beings, and not even the most important ones are pecuniary. People have died for honor, for the defense of their own. North Korean ideology is based upon racial socialism. People sacrifice on claims of nationality and honor and patriotism. And if we don't understand that, it's bad on us. Thanks, Nick. I'd like to go to our second speaker, who is Irv Gelman. Irv, why did you write your book, Campaign of the Century, which is a historical account of the 1960s presidential race between JFK and Richard Nixon? Because it's been told wrong for six decades. Theodore White's The Making of the President, 1960, was excellent. But the most important aspect that was mistold was Theodore White's idea that Kennedy was a hero and Nixon was a villain. Neither were heroes and neither were villains. They were ambitious politicians that wanted to win the highest election in the United States. During the 1960 presidential campaign, Dwight Eisenhower was the president and Nixon was the vice president. Eisenhower was hugely popular and had won in a landslide in his previous two elections in 1952 and 1956. Why did Nixon benefit from Eisenhower's coattails? Eisenhower wanted to be loved by everyone and tried his hardest not to be a quote-unquote partisan politician, even though he was. He was a bureaucratic politician who was able to manage people as he did in World War II. But Eisenhower's popularity did not rub off on Nixon. The Democrats had approximately 10 to 15 million more registrants than Republicans did. So Kennedy had a far better base than Nixon had. When Eisenhower ran in 1956, he was running against a man he already defeated. In addition to already defeating Adlai Stevenson, Stevenson ran a very poor campaign. And as his campaign tanked, the Russians invaded Hungary, and there was this rallying around the president to stop aggression. Kennedy and Nixon were both in their 40s when they ran for president. It's such a stark contrast to the 2020 Trump versus Biden, where both were in their mid-70s. Kennedy was a great, great campaigner. He was charismatic. He had a young wife, a little child, dressed nicely, smiled, and the press, quite frankly, was seduced by him. They overwhelmingly favored him as a candidate. Nixon took on Alger Hiss, and that became a cause celeb for liberals because there's no way that an Ivy Leaguer like Alger Hiss could be a communist spy. When Nixon ran for the vice presidency, he became the attack dog for Dwight Eisenhower. So he runs his own campaign as, quote unquote, one of us. And Jack Kennedy runs a campaign where he is the fair-haired boy. The press has favored Democrats in every election since 1960. Why does the press matter, given that the Republicans have won their fair share of presidential elections? Not quite. The nature of Republican victories come in the midst of a very unpopular war, assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Republicans turn the South into a Republican solid South. Elections after 1968 
become national elections where before 1968, they were regional where Democrats had the South locked up and Republicans lost the whole section of the country. Reading your book, I was shocked at how inconsequential the issues that were debated during the 1960 presidential campaign. They seemed trivial given what the pressing issues that America was going to deal with in the 1960s like civil rights and Vietnam. As an example of one major debating point, Nixon ridiculed Kennedy's demand that Eisenhower apologize to Russia for the U-2 flights. These two people were clones. If you substituted what Nixon said for what Kennedy said, they would have been materially different. The only difference was the personality contest. What I find remarkable about the election is the popular vote was a wash. The election was so close The partisans on either side made this incredible distinction that these two people couldn't have been more dissimilar when, in fact, they were very similar. They were friends. JFK had not been a strong advocate for civil rights when he was a U.S. senator. In contrast, Eisenhower had sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas to integrate the public schools. Did JFK outperform Nixon in the 1960 election among black voters? Since 1936, Democrats won two-thirds of the black vote. That didn't change. Martin Luther King was arrested in Georgia during the height of the presidential campaign, and JFK gave King support. Was this act important with black voters? No. It was make-believe. All Jack Kennedy did was call Coretta King and offer condolences. Kennedy got 68% of the black vote. The numbers didn't change. 1960 had the first televised presidential debates. Over 100 million Americans watched all four debates. People make a big deal about Nixon's makeup melting under the hot lamps, while JFK looked cool and in control. The story is so badly exaggerated, it almost rises to fable. Nixon did not look well. His shirt didn't fit. Nixon told Eisenhower the day before the debate he was going to show him how nice a guy he was, and he was going to use a debating technique where he agreed with Kennedy. And every time he agreed with Kennedy on that debate, his supporters went, Nixon wasn't Nixon in the first debate. If you listen to the second, third, and fourth debate, he's far more confrontational. Kennedy gets irritated. You don't hear Anything after the first debate where, oh, Nixon looks sick, you hear, go get him, Dick. I've heard that radio listeners thought that Nixon won the first debate, while TV listeners believe JFK won. Is that accurate? That's a fable also. The results came from one poll of a small number of people. There was an opinion out there that became history. Hubert Humphrey was JFK's opponent in the Democratic primaries. Why did Humphrey fade so early? Quite frankly, the most secondary, tragic figure was Hubert Humphrey, who was really a very nice man who had serious principles that he did not abandon. But as far as being a politician that would go for the throat, 
He simply didn't have the killer instinct in him. LBJ looked upon him as a weak candidate to succeed him, and in 1968, pretty much abandoned him for Nixon. His whole career was a career of principle, and principle doesn't win elections. The popular vote in the 1960 presidential election was incredibly close. It was basically a tie. The electoral election depends on JFK's winning two states, Illinois and Texas. There have been allegations of voter fraud that have been asserted that won the election for JFK. Do you believe the voter fraud narrative? Yes, I believe the fraud in Texas and Illinois could have gone to Nixon. You can't prove it now because it's 60 years after the fact. Deniers believe there was no such thing as frauds in national election, which is an absurdity. The mayor of Chicago, Richard Daley, tells Kennedy that he won by fraud. I interviewed Ben Bradley, who talked to Jack Kennedy at dinner the day after the election. And Kennedy told Bradley about the conversation he had with Daley. Texas is a whole different story. Johnson was running as vice president, and in addition, he was running in the Senate. Johnson had never won a statewide election without using fraud. And without exception, every author who writes Johnson's biography talks about the massive fraud in 1941 and 1948. And yet his principal biographers in 1960 don't mention it. I mean, not even a sentence. How can a historian evaluate voter fraud in the 1960 presidential election? You can't. The only way you can stop fraud is before an election, not after an election. The amount of people convicted of fraud in in Chicago were three. Three people out of 51 wards. That's ridiculous. Every politician, judges, and juries were Democrats. Nobody was going to prove fraud. And even if you did prove fraud, how in the world would you start another campaign in another election? Nixon knew it would cause a constitutional crisis. Nixon knew there was no way to challenge an election in Texas. When the state Republican Party in Texas challenged the election, they went up against Leon Jaworski, who went in front of a federal judge and said, there were no civil rights violation, throw this out of court. And the judge, who went to high school with Jaworski, threw it out of court. Nixon knew that there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell of changing the election in Texas. And if you couldn't change it in Texas, it was irrelevant changing it anywhere else. Nixon deserves a great deal of credit for the way he handled it. What historical lessons can be learned from the 1960 presidential election? Write good history rather than bad history. I was flabbergasted that there was no research on the fraud in the election. The one lesson that you talked about earlier, you don't stop fraud after an election. It's not possible. You can't bring all these people to trial. You can't say you committed fraud. We're going to do a do-over. What were JFK's legislative successes after winning the election? Other than the change in income tax, the major piece of legislation passed under JFK, 
the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1962. Kennedy said with a stroke of a pen, he would change black housing, segregation. It never happened. The change in the income tax laws did happen because he was able to get bipartisan support. The problem that Jack Kennedy had as president is he had no connection with Congress in his 14 years in Congress. In the House and the Senate, he had no legislation with his name on it. None winning elections was his claim to fame. JFK includes Republicans as members of his cabinet and senior executive roles. Here are three examples. JFK uses Dillon as Secretary of Treasury, Alan Dulles remains as CIA Director, and Nixon's Vice Presidential Candidate Henry Cabot Lodge is made ambassador to Vietnam. That turns out to be a critically important position in the years ahead. Alan Dulles was already there and was a fixture. Dillon accepted his appointment as Secretary of Treasury, and Eisenhower was angry that Dillon was going with the opposition. And in Lodge's case, he could work with both Democrats and Republicans. Kennedy was trying to bring in the loyal opposition into his administration. How did the JFK Camelot myth get started? The way he died was so awful that it brings forth sympathy from everyone. When I was walking on campus and somebody told me that he had been assassinated, I was shocked. It was a terrible day for the vast majority of Americans. Camelot was a fabrication. Jackie Kennedy got a hold of Theodore White, and they just made this up for a Look magazine article. Kennedy would have been appalled that he was compared to Camelot. What do you think has been underreported by JFK's biographers? His sexual affairs, his health, and corruption. Why wasn't JFK's sexual behavior covered by the press during the presidential campaign or during his presidency? 1960 and earlier, your sexual conduct was not mentioned. Now we have the memoirs of B.B. Alford, Once Upon a Secret. We have memoirs of Judith Exner and a whole series of these people who had affairs with Kennedy. The raw data from these FBI files are now available and show him in the worst possible light. Why didn't Nixon attack JFK for his sexual infidelities? Nixon was straight-laced. He wasn't going to use sex in the campaign. JFK did not disclose that he had a severe case of Addison's disease. Did he have a duty to disclose this? There was no law that forced candidates for the presidency to disclose their health. And by the way, there is no law today. Eisenhower, when he had his heart attack, it was heavily covered. When he had his colon operated on, it was national news. When he had a mild stroke in 1957, it was nationally disclosed. Robert Dalek, who wrote a book on John F. Kennedy, says that if he had disclosed his Addison's disease, he probably would not have been nominated for president. Theodore Sorensen, who was Kennedy's alter ego, says, yes, he would. But the real issue is, should they disclose or not disclose? 
late in the campaign, there were requests for both candidates to get physicals. Nixon was more than willing. Kennedy said it already has happened. Sounds like JFK's Aaron Rodgers moment. Next topic is press conferences. Eisenhower had 200 press conferences in his two terms, and this is a stark contrast with Biden, who's had six in his first 15 months. Why did Eisenhower have so many press conferences? Eisenhower had a weekly press conference because he wanted to go directly to the American public. He felt that the press was partisan and that the best way to communicate with the American public was through a press conference. Richard Nixon thought that the press was not giving him a fair shake, and the best way for him to communicate with the public was through his own speaking. My dad told me that JFK's press conference performances were incredible. Kennedy really was charming with vigor and energy and the way he used his Boston accent. When you look at the election results from the 1960 presidential election, the regional partisan results are wildly different than today. Kennedy won the South, but lost California. Most of the individual states were extremely close, like California, Texas, Illinois, Wisconsin, and others. What happened in the cities and the growing suburbs? Of the 149 major cities, 20 or 30 went for Nixon and all the rest went for Kennedy. The nature of urban split starts under FDR and accelerated more and more and more. Nixon did very well in the suburbs. JFK was the first Catholic president. What was the role of religion in the 1960 campaign? The Kennedys used his Catholic religion to help him win the election. The only percentage that changed radically in the 1960 election was that 78% Catholics voted for Kennedy. In 1956, 50% voted for Stevenson. That's a 29% jump. That's huge. The Republican National Committee thought that four to six million more Catholics voted in 1960 than in 1956. Joe Biden's Catholic, but he lost the Catholic vote. What happened? Biden did not appeal to various Catholic archbishops and priests for his stands on various issues, i.e. abortion. Today, a majority of men vote Republican and a majority of women vote Democratic. What happened in 1960? Kennedy was loved by women. They screamed. They just found him so attractive. In 1960, more women voted for Nixon than voted for Kennedy. It was close, 51 to 49. But Nixon won the female vote. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Irv, what are you optimistic about? I'm hopeful more than optimistic. I'd like to think that my book brings more of a reality into how elections should be thought of, not in terms of villains and heroes, but in terms of people that are doing the best that they can do, both Kennedy and Nixon and those people around them truly believed that they were on a righteous crusade, that their person was best for the nation. I find today so much cynicism in campaigning and elections and marketing and 
not thinking of what really is best, but what the polls are saying. And Campaign of the Century shows what really happened in the best sense of the word. Thanks to Nick and Irv for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be Angela Stent, who is a professor emerita at Georgetown University and director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies. She is also the author of Putin's World. I'm excited to hear Angela's reaction to Putin's decision to attack Ukraine and what it means for his continued hold on power. Angela is an expert on all aspects of Russian leadership and Putin in particular, so this should be terrific. Our second speaker will be Anthony King, who is professor of war studies at the University of Warwick in the UK. Anthony's latest book is Urban Warfare in the 21st Century, which is incredibly informative as to what street fighting will look like in Ukraine. There is much to learn from Chechnya and Iraq about urban war and what is necessary to win or achieve a stalemate. If you missed last week's program, check it out. We had Barry Latzer, who discussed his book, The Roots of Violent Crime in America, as well as Howard Husak, who chatted about his new book, The Poor Side of Town, and why market-based solutions are far superior to public-supported housing. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens X program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.